Hello and welcome to Supers on Screen, the superhero movie podcast. I'm your host, Dylan Roth, and today we're going to be talking about Columbia Pictures and Marvel's 2002 live-action film, Spider-Man, starring Tobey Maguire, Willem Dafoe, Kirsten Dunst, Fra- James Franco, Cliff Robertson, J.K. Simmons, and Rosemary Harris. Uh, it was directed by Sam Raimi, and my guests today, a uh, returning guest and uh, Deadshirt.net movies editor, Dominic Griffin. Hey! And for the first time on the show, writer, artist, and host of the Disney Dissected podcast, JoJo Seams. Welcome to the program. Glad to be here. Thank you. So this movie is is special in that as much as the first X-Men film from 20th Century Fox and uh, and Marvel that we did for the first episode of Super Sound Screen all those months ago with Dominic Griffin on that episode, uh, as much as that was the sort of official launch of the superhero movie boom, of the 21st century, Spider-Man is like an amazing, huge blockbuster mainstream success that really set the formula for a lot of superhero movies for the first half of that decade. And it's sort of interesting to look in that way. And also, it's the only movie really in like the whole superhero canon that's been like directly remade. And it was like 10 years later. So it's kind of got a couple of unique things going for it. For those of you at home who have not seen this movie, and this is one of those ones where I kind of feel like if you haven't seen this movie, it's weird that you're listening to this podcast. Not that you shouldn't. You're, we're happy to have you. But this is one you should probably go see. I think it's still on Netflix. The summary for this movie is awkward teenager Peter Parker gets spider-like powers and becomes New York's costumed crime fighter Spider-Man. Now he must stop the evil Green Goblin, who is actually his best friend's father, Norman Osborn, from terrorizing the city. So... Um, I think probably this is a movie we all have a great deal of experience with and a character we all have a great deal of experience with, so I'd like to see where we all begin our Spider-Man tales. Uh, Jojo, where was your first Spider-Man experience? Or when, rather? Ooh, I'm not sure. Let me think. The thing is that as big as I am into superheroes and have been my my entire life, Spider-Man is actually the corner of the Marvel Universe that I haven't really been in as much, I think, is pretty pretty unusual. When I was a kid, I was very into X Men. I loved Thor. That that world. Um, but Spider Man stories, not so much. Just kind of knew about him around the around the edges. I think I read my first Spider Man comics in high school around the time that the movie came out there were there were a bunch of them at my school and public libraries and of course I would read any comic I could get my hands on so I think it would have been around then that I directly first started to read some Spider-Man stories instead of just having an awareness of his existence so did you see this movie when it first came out as well yes I'm pretty sure I saw this in the theater I don't actually have a clear memory of seeing it in the theater, but I'm pretty sure I, I did. I wonder how I reacted at the time. <laughs> mm. So, Dom, how about you? What's your Spider-Man origin story? Um, I grew up a Marvel kid, but I was way more into the X-Men and other things than Spider-Man. I had tons of Spider-Man comics. I was really into the Sinister Six, stuff like that, but I wasn't a huge Spider-Man-like fan, actually, until this movie came out, around this time. Uh... For me, my relationship with uh, Sam Raimi's Spider-Man is the polar opposite of my relationship with Brian Singer's X-Men, where I grew up on the X-Men and hated the movie when it came out, 
and I was relatively indifferent to Spider-Man at the time that this movie came out, and then after it was over, it was all I wanted in my life was further Peter Parker adventures. Um, the weekend it opened, I saw it three times. <laughs> I saw it Friday and Saturday and Sunday. Um, I'm pretty sure I alienated a lot of my friends at school on Monday because it was the only thing I wanted to talk about. Um, and I, it was, I was just crazy about it. I mean, I guess at the time I was probably really into Straczynski's Spider-Man run uh, because he'd yet to break my heart multiple times. Um, and I really dug the movie. I dug everything about it. Uh, I guess the most glaring thing about the movie that I, I, I hate now uh, but had no problem with as a teenager was just Tobey Maguire. But yeah. even then, it was I was still cool with Toby. I love the movie. I love the cast. Uh, to me, it was one of the first superhero movies that really felt like a comic. You know, I felt everything felt right. Later on, is like logic would kind of seep into the world. I would go, "Wait, that sequence is kind of dumb," or like, "This doesn't really fit." Um, but the first time I saw it, I was like, "Everything is happening is perfect," and I have no complaints whatsoever. That movie made 114 million dollars that weekend. And <laughs> Thirty-five of those dollars were mine. <laughs> <laughs> so for me, I was—I uh, didn't read a lot of Spider-Man comics as a kid. I grew up very much a DC loyalist, and uh, but I did really enjoy all the animated series that were coming out, both from DC and from Marvel. So I would watch the Spider-Man animated series pretty regular. I even really tried to get into Spider-Man Unlimited when that started. You know, started re- they started re-airing it when I was in high school or in middle school. Uh, that didn't work out. That show's not very good, but they tried. They did, uh, but I never really read any uh, any Marvel comics almost at all until Ultimate Marvel began. I was really at the exact age that they were really aiming for with Ultimate Spider-Man when it launched, which I guess would be around uh, twelve or thirteen. It happened pretty much concurrently with the release of this film, which was part of the point of Ultimate Marvel. And what's more is that they launched. Uh, sort of a precursor to what is Marvel Unlimited now, around the same time, called Marvel.comics, where mm-hmm. they would put guided view, or a primitive version of guided view, versions of some of their new comics up for free on Marvel.com, and they really got me, because at a certain point, I think like the first like 20 or so issues of Ultimate Spider-Man were all up there for free for me to read, and I was just like, I could not get enough of it. I'd read it over and over again, and later I'd get the trade paperbacks, and I was never going to catch up to the book, because by the time I was buying comics on the regular, it was like it, issue 70. But that's when I've, I've, I've never really been an enormous fan of the main core Spider-Man books. I don't know what it is that's different about them. Maybe the only Spider-Man that really exists in my head is Brian Michael Bennis's Spider-Man. But I have read every single issue of, of Ultimate Spider-Man through all the Peter Parker years, through Miles Morales' years, and those are, those are my Spider-Man stories. And so I, I didn't really have a big attachment to anything Spider-Man-like before the movie came out. Um, now I still enjoy it, um, but this used to be a movie that I would watch like every weekend over and over on like DVD, just, just to death, that I could pretty much... I, I, I find this to be a very quotable movie, so I end up breaking out stuff from this very often. Uh, it's it's sort of, I guess, a staple, but I don't like it as much now as I as I used to, and I guess we're going to get into why that is over the course of the episode. You know, I, I want to interject a little thing. I think the reason why you and most people really, and myself included, really got into Ultimate Spider-Man and that became our Spider-Man is that by the time we were the right age to relate to and understand Peter Parker's problems, your average issue of Amazing Spider-Man or whatever adjective Spider-Man 
was centered around like midlife crisis Peter Parker and like none of us could really relate to you know him trying to get like a a part-time job and like his ex-wife and all this you know he became like this sort of uh depressing like sitcom character <laughs> and uh I think letting that character age you know what I mean I mean, I mean you kind of have to I guess cuz a lot of time has passed since the 60s but the all the Spider-Man comics at the time, even the ones I enjoyed, ultimately, like, you know, when I really got into Straczynski's run, it's like, here's Peter as a science teacher uh, trying to reconcile things with his estranged supermodel wife. And I'm like, what is this? It's so far removed from the core myth. And this movie really brought everything back to what works about Spider-Man, like sad, weird, awkward kid in school, can't make life work bad stuff happens to him, he overcomes. You know what I mean? And, like, that really functions. Like, no other superhero, other than, I think, Spider-Man, had, had strayed so far from what made it work. Like, you know, you're not going to pick up an issue of Batman ever that's, like, really that far from what Batman does. But Spider-Man, for a time, was a this just weird quasi-thing that didn't fit what you would tell a child Spider-Man is. You know what I mean? Uh, and that was like the biggest thing about this movie was it really reminded you, no, this is this is his element. This is what works about the the myth. Ironically, with an actor who looks like he should be playing the high school teacher rather than the high schooler. I'm gonna try my best throughout this podcast to not use a lot of negative words to describe Tobey Maguire, but I really hate Tobey Maguire. <laughs> I, I'm with you, and I think you you just touched on what is the perpetual problem with Spider-Man is that. The inherent appeal of Spider-Man as a character, the reason people always love him, is because he's, I think, the one big top-tier superhero just across the board who is a teen character, who is conceived of as a teenage character who deals with teenage problems, trying to navigate that world between the confinement of childhood and the responsibilities of adulthood but the way that stories work is that, you know, he, he keeps going forward and it's really hard to keep him in that, in that place of adolescence when, you're, when you ha- get to enough, enough issues or episodes or movies or what have you. He's going to age out of that and they have to keep trying, trying to find ways to reboot him back to a younger version of the character. I think the solution they had in the Ultimate Universe was great. They just, you know, killed him. <laughs> Someone... I was getting old. Uh, right. That, that's what they had to do. They had they had to get back to a, a, a Spider-Man who's a kid. They interviewed Bendis a while ago. It had to be around, I don't know, maybe issue 50 or 60 of Ultimate Spider-Man. Someone's like, so when's Peter going to go to college? When's this going to happen? He's like, Peter did all that crap and it didn't work. Like, someone's like, well, how old is Peter? What grade is he in? He was like, if, if I had my way, Peter's going to be Bart Simpson. He's going to be that age forever until someone makes me leave. And he still hasn't left. It's insane to me to think about, like, uh, Bendis, I think, has been writing Ultimate Spider-Man in some iteration or other for 12 years now? Like I think 14. I think 14, the show, I think, yeah. the, I think that, the, that the series started in the year 2000. It's insane, Yeah. Okay, let's talk about this movie. <laughs> so let's talk about what makes Spider-Man Spider-Man in this movie. Who is Peter Parker in the Sam Raimi Spider-Man? I think in the Sam Raimi Spider-Man, one of the reasons maybe Sam was so good at translating this character to the screen is he really made Peter the prototypical Steve Ditko, angular, strange, nerd kid. Like, there's a lot of things I don't buy about Tobey Maguire in this movie, uh, that he's a teenager, 
uh, that he has talent, but I really buy that he's a complete and utter loser, and that's probably his biggest strength in the role. Um, without doing a whole lot cinematically, just the minute he shows up, you're like, oh, this poor kid. <laughs> you know, um, and that's probably his biggest strength as lead of this movie is he just instantly elicits pity. <laughs> um, and I, I think that makes him, I think maybe it's part of why the character, why the film was so popular at the time is uh, Peter is just this bland, neutral mask that any of us can go, that's us in high school or middle school or whatever, and, you know, wouldn't it be cool if we had powers? So, like, you, you really follow his journey a lot better than I think you do uh, in the newer Spider-Man films with Andrew Garfield, who I think is way better at the role, but is just too fun and too interesting to really relate to. He's just, like, this, like, cool hipster version of Peter Parker that, like, nobody really needs. Yeah, this movie definitely focuses on one aspect of who comic version Peter Parker is, which is that, you know, he is... He is a sad sack. He is a guy that bad things happen to and that he is perpetually miserable. And with the amazing Spider-Man films, they, they sort of correct that maybe a little too far in the other direction with another aspect of his character, which is that he's very bright and clever, which makes him come across as as a little bit too cool, perhaps. Though I have to say, I really prefer that interpretation over this interpretation i pretty much prefer anything over this interpretation actually (laughs) my my number one problem with the sam raimi spider-man movies that i do not like overall i i really dislike them the big problem is that i dislike this peter parker as a person so very much I think that, like, most of... We we sympathize with him because from the moment we first meet him on screen, we realize that everyone he goes to school with is a sociopath. They are. Like, everyone's throwing shit at him. Why? Because he wears glasses? He's so innocuous. How could anyone even care about him enough to torment him? Right. How does anybody even notice him? Yeah, he's, he's nobody. He's nothing. The fact that they... The only logical explanation, if you want to apply logic to it, which you don't have to do, but if you were going to apply logic to the behavior of the people in this movie, is that he goes to, unlike the magnet school for scientists that he goes to in the Amazing Spider-Man movies, in, um, in this version of the character, he goes to some sort of magnet school for serial killers and bullies and yeah. everybody he goes to school with the, the exception of mj and kind of harry is just this monster who lives to torment him and it's like so over the top and he never does anything to these guys i mean is there a movie before this movie where he spends the entire time pranking kids and then feels bad about it but no one's forgiven him yet and anyway well, you know what you, what you the, the sense you get with this movie is uh it's it's not particularly subtle, and all of the setup of like Peter's life feels as though someone took like an uh, an offhand panel from a Spider-Man comic of a bunch of people throwing paper at him, so you know he's a loser, and then extrapolated that into an entire scene of like, no, no, the, everyone just throws paper at him because fuck that guy, um, and it's unrealistic, but it's like a really good shorthand for just you know, in case you didn't already want to punch Tobey Maguire in the face, so does everyone around him. <laughs> Welcome to Peter right. Parker. The other thing about him is that he does, to me, kind of fit in at sociopath school because he is a major creep. Oh, for sure. He, he sets off every creep 
signal that there is. He is he is he is unsettling. <laughs> the circumstances for him getting to be Maximum Creep are really for one thing, he he's got this this weird silent crush on his next door neighbor, which is really uncomfortable. His window is opposite her window, all kinds of gross feelings when you see him looking back over across the from his house into the next house, right into MJ's room, and he's just looking there, like, it's creepy. He's the photographer for the school, which gives him, like, opportunity and motive to creep on people, and... Right, and and he... He wants to reach out to her in her emotionally vulnerable moments to to, to try to get a date. There's that scene where we see that, you know, her abusive father is screaming at her and she leaves the house and she's upset and she's going down to the bus stop and he kind of is staring at her with his horrible blank eyes, his shark eyes. And <laughs> like a doll's eyes. <laughs> exactly. He's, he's staring at her, he's looking after her, and then he starts rehearsing to himself about how he's trying to psych himself up to go over and talk to her to say hey and to ask her if she wants to do something sometime as she's you know 30 feet away from him kind of crying into her hand that is that is so horrifying his understanding of her as a human being also seems a little bit weird he he has this sort of moment with her um after um i guess around uh the day after he he beats up flash um where they're having this sort of moment and then Flash pulls up in his new car, which is like this big flashy expensive car and how the hell does he have that car? Um, and she's all excited about it and he's like, oh, that's definitely the thing that's standing in my way. I need a cool car. And his plan, again, this is a very 18, 17-year-old, 18-year-old plan. And that's the, the, the something that I kind of can forgive because it's one of the few moments where he behaves like the character's age that he's supposed to be. He thinks, oh, if I get a cool car, then she'll want to date me. And that's his plan. It's right. creepy, but at the very least, at least it's it's sort of appropriately dumb to the age he's supposed to be playing. I, I also think it's less like uh, glorifying of the sort of like shitty MRA friend zone loser like archetype than it is. It feels like a, a Stanley comic, but uh, once you give that three dimensions and like real people enacting it. It's, there's an inherent creepiness to like what on the page might be like, oh, poor Peter. He doesn't know how to relate to people. But in real life, you look at Tobey Maguire's sad, gross face, uh, and <laughs> all you can think about is like, what a, what a fucking loser. Like, you know, in a comic panel, like in 1963, drawn by Steve Ditko, you know, Peter Parker left of the frame being like, if I had a cool car, maybe she'd talk to me, doesn't feel that creepy. But like, you know, uh, Tobey Maguire reenacting scenes from the passion of darkly noon staring at kids against their window you're like yeah this is really weird i don't think a spider is going to solve your problems i think this comes from two fundamental problems that this movie has just down at the base level that are where all the movies problems are springing from just number one that all of the character relationships are are not right they're all existing on a timeline that's wrong and weird and makes all these relationships feel very strange. The other thing is that the tone of this movie is completely off. The dialogue and the the action is written like a cartoon. And you watch this and 
you could see, okay, J.K. Simmons knew exactly what to do. And Willem Dafoe read this and was like, oh, yes, this is a cartoon. I need to be as over the top as possible. And the two of them play this, you know, this is a this is a cartoon. It's going to be bright and weird. It's not going to be a very realistic treatment. So we can so it's going to be a movie that operates with shorthand and those kind of teen tropes of he's a loser. So three people throw paper at him that would work in something that was really bright and colorful and communicates to us that it's operating on shorthand. But the tone of this movie is off. They play most of the scenes to be so serious and sincere and tender. And the whole movie has this sort of weight of sadness over it that asks us to take some of this dialogue and character relationships more realistically and the creepiness is there because they're acting in these over-the-top ways that are not healthy in the real world. The movie really feels as though Robert Redford followed up his movie Ordinary People with Warren Beatty's Dick Tracy and walked into a set with Warren Beatty's Dick Tracy and all the color and the vibrance and the weird prosthetic makeup but then tried to imbue it with the same like angst and and human emotion of like you know uh, a prestige drama and at times i think that mixture creates like some really cool moments and stuff particularly in in the uh in spider-man 2 but in this particular film there's a a real sense of willem dafoe and jk simmons and and you know uh some of the other like you know smaller roles hamming it up and having a good time and going we're in a comic book movie and then toe mcguire you know is still in like ang lee mode and James Franco, I don't know what the fuck he's doing this entire movie, really. Um, and I don't know, there's, I mean, I don't want to hop around the plot, but there's a lot of moments where one character is behaving uh, one way and, and it makes sense, and another character tonally contradicts that, and, like, you're just supposed to... I mean, I guess when I was, like, 15, I didn't care because then they cut away to, like, really cool swinging sequences. Um, but as an adult, you watch it and you're like, uh, why are these characters... Like, you're right. The actual relationship between the characters doesn't make sense. Like, I always personally felt that like Peter's first like love needs to be Gwen Stacy because their relationship like makes sense. Like them meeting each other and then having common ground. Like it kind of feels right. And then Mary Jane coming up later fits. But here, having Mary Jane just be like the hot girl with the abusive dad next door seems weirdly convenient and also kind of uncomfortable. Yeah. Um, and then on top of that, like, Peter just being friends with, like, the richest kid at school, who is also, looks kind of like James Dean. Like, it doesn't make any sense, like, that Harry Osborne go to this high school and then befriend the fucking weird kid with the camera whose parents are poor and lives in Queens. It just, it just seems really odd. You know what I mean? Right. We don't see a, a moment that explains Peter and Harry's friendship. We don't see why they're friends together. If there was anything there to establish why that's happening, it would make more sense. This movie really cuts right to the chase of weird things start happening. It doesn't really give us a sense of what normal is. And it's very strange that in the first scene that that we see them, Harry introduces his father Norman to Peter. And that's completely out there because there's this 
sort of subplot going on of Norman Osborn sort of preferring Peter over Harry, which Who would kind of like <laughs> right. And he says that Peter has been like a brother to Harry, that he appreciates that relationship, but he just met him. If they have, they already all know each other. Everything makes sense. It would make sense that Norman Osborn has this fondness for Peter beyond just a reputation that he is smart and like science. And yeah, because that I mean that dynamic is actually really fascinating. I think that's there's something really cool in Harry and Peter being friends, and Norman Osborn wishing Peter was his son, and like there's a lot of really cool stuff that gets mined from that and better better uh, versions of mythology. But in the movie, it's just kind of, like, random. And, I mean, I guess that's more owing to... Uh, the biggest strengths of this film really belong to the way Sam Raimi realizes this world and the way some of the actors inhabit the roles. But one of its biggest problems is that the the script... You know, David Kep wrote uh, a majority of it loosely adapting a, a script that James Cameron worked on years before that, you know, was never going to get made. Um... And I think Scott Rosenberg worked in the script, too, who, like, I think was one of the co-writers on High Fidelity, if I'm not mistaken. Don't quote me. Um, And then, like, 70-year-old screenwriting legend Alvin Sargent uh, was, like, the last writer on the story and worked on one, two, and three. And as smart as he is, a storyteller when it comes to structure and and things of that nature, I feel like just the, the stylistic differences between all those writers really holds back these movies from feeling cohesive. Because each one of the movies feels like three different movies that don't jive well together. Um, some of the comedy lands flat. Some of the drama is a little too goofy. Some of the action is like doesn't have quite the right stakes. And this film uh, specifically always feels like it's close to coming together, but doesn't quite. And like Spider-Man Two, they get they get a little bit better than Spider-Man Three. They go the opposite direction. But in this one, you have to flip back and forth between these fun kind of goofy teen movie tropes and this like weird family drama dynamic stuff and then like some just totally thrown together uh superhero action and uh specifically it it comes from you know spider-man's successful because he has very interesting relationships uh one of the reasons going back to bendis's work on ultimate spider-man that all of these core plot things that happen in the movie work in the comic is that when you see the peter and harry are friends you're given a reason why they're friends you get the vibe that Harry, despite being rich and popular, is an eccentric guy, and Peter, despite being a poor loser, is someone he relates to, and, like, he feels a kinship with him, and, like, there's, there's a protectiveness there, and there's all these really cool layers to their brotherhood or whatever. In the movie, it's just, like, Toby's weird, James Franco's weird, his dad's maybe a murderer or something, and, like, they just hang out. And you just kind of go with it because you, you just go with it, you know? And I, I think that's, that's problematic. Um, I, I think it's... You know, uh, when you when you, I think if you, when you watch it when you're younger, or you're not as familiar with the mythology. You're really into it because it, it's pretty well paced. Stuff happens pretty quickly, uh, despite this really this movie being the real birth of the 45 minute origin story shtick. You know what I mean? Like, uh, it, it it it's fun and it, and it's bright, but as you get older and you try to like dissect it, uh, it just falls to pieces. You know what I mean? Yeah, there's definitely. Like, like Jojo was saying, it feels like even though some, some of the characters explicitly meet when the movie starts, and the rest of the characters just feel like they just met when the movie starts. So, There's nothing more frustrating than someone creating a world 
that feels as though it is not functioning when you're not looking at it. And, uh, you know, when you watch, uh, you know, like uh, other superhero movies that are similar to Spider-Man that maybe not, weren't quite as successful, they at least try to give you the vibe that this world started before you got there. You know, and when you watch, I, I mean, re-watching this film, I got the vibe that before the camera started rolling on people, people shooting spitballs at Peter Parker, that nothing existed. <laughs> you know, I don't feel like, I can't imagine what scenes with Peter and Harry were like before the movie started. You know, it doesn't, none of the writing supports pre-existing relationships and attitudes and character arcs. It's like, it's like they're all just uh, uh, vomited onto the screen and then you just kind of see them interacting from there. Right. We don't see Peter Parker interacting with Uncle Ben and Aunt May before he gets bit by the spider and starts acting weird. So we don't know what is normal for that relationship. We don't really see what Norman Osborn is like as a normal guy before he does the goblinification and starts acting strangely. So we don't really get a sense of what this guy is like normally um we don't see what peter and harry's relationship is like how they interact how they are friends we're just kind of told that they are because the plot wants it to be so they go back and forth between if peter parker and mary jane watson actually ever talk to each other on a daily basis or not it seems very get, much mixed messages about what their relationship is. It seems like they maybe see each other, you know, like they're going to run into each other now and then. They have very surface level conversations, and it's not until Peter gets his spider confidence that he starts really actually trying to engage her in conversation, whether she wants it or not, uh, <laughs> at the weirdest time. And it they, clearly they must they must have like maybe it's just that he's now slightly seems like he stopped hunching and he's not wearing glasses anymore and it's like the she's all that approach and now that he's now that he's filled out a, a little bit not super visibly even it's not like you can tell most of the time that he's ripped now um that all of a sudden he's not a nerd anymore because he took off his glasses they have they have weird chemistry and every, they, they keep having moments at the most inappropriate uncomfortable times throughout the movie uh, so true the first time that they have a moment is I guess you could say the first time is when like he catches the falling milk or whatever, or she notices his eyes. But there's a scene you were talking about, JoJo, where she's stepping out and having the, uh, where she's like her dad screaming at her and everything, and he's just like, "Yeah, we're gonna light up Broadway. It's gonna be great." And they have a moment there, and like that's that's weird. That's that's not a weird normal time to have a romantic moment. And then later, it's um, Mary Jane and Spider Man have this hot moment right. Moments after Mary Jane was just about to be like assaulted, and like yeah. that's a weird time to get all physical and bothered. And then they have this thing where they're flirting in front of Aunt May in her hospital room. And then later at the end of the movie, they start making out at a funeral. I mean, this is their their chemistry must be their chemistry must actually be off the charts. That they can't contain themselves in these weird situations. Or right. it's the it weird situations be, but, but that they are in no too. chemistry. Yeah. I think the vibe I get no from those scenes is that uh, 
at some point in the, the studio rewriting process, someone read the script and was like, you know what? We don't have enough romantic moments between Peter and Mary Jane. There's no meet cute. There's no any of the you know hallmarks. We need more moments like that weird upside down kiss that people are going to love and give MTV awards to. We need to go back <laughs> and punch those moments up and give some more romance. And then the writer had to go back in and go, I didn't leave any room for this. Uh, oh, there's a little bit of space between. I mean, it'd be weird to have it next to the abuse scene, but ah, fuck it, no one's gonna know. And like, just they just slid those pages in, and we're like, we'll just shoot it. You know, we'll see how it works. We'll fix it in post, uh, and and no one to fix the awkwardness in post. It's just a strange movie. Uh, you never really buy Peter and Mary Jane as like a real romantic unit. I don't think. And I think one of the things that's weird is, I mean, the Spider-Man comics give you, like, 30 years of Peter being a weird, selfish, uh, unreliable, awkward person who has multiple relationships with incredibly beautiful women, many of whom uh, either die or have horrible things happen to them. And in this movie, you just meet uh, viciously unlikable nerd Tobey Maguire <laughs> and you're expected to believe that he is gonna you know pair up with like prime era Kirsten Dunst you know before she started hanging out with Sofia Coppola and it's just hard it really I mean I guess when I was 15 it made sense because like it just kind of fit but watching it now you're just like I don't buy this not well, not when, this. when you're 15 and you're if you're a 15 year old boy watching this who feels awkward and weird, you accept it because you want it to happen to you, and not because it makes any sense. Yeah, I'm no longer doing the movie's work for it by yeah. fueling the film with wish fulfillment. <laughs> but, like, there's this... The, because of all the weird moments that they have, if you, if, you were, if you were given the job of Cracked After Hours to take something that's innocuous and make it into something horrible so it's ruined forever and you can't ever watch it again, then you have to draw the con- conclusion that Mary Jane's not into Peter, she likes danger and drama it's not about him he's a weirdness magnet and horrible things happen around him when she's around him horrible stuff is happening and she's like cool excitement in my life and drama and who's this guy awesome this must be the thing that's the only it's the only thing that makes any sense and it's so unfortunate dylan if you had told me that after this podcast i'd never watch this movie again I might not have signed up. Like we, I, I didn't expect this, <laughs> to hear this film. I, I knew I was going to make jokes about Tobey Maguire. I knew I was going to talk about scenes I didn't like. But I, like, I think we're just slowly murdering this film in my own heart. Like I don't think there's any love I have left for it now. Thanks for listening to Supers on Screen, everybody. <laughs> uh, go out and see Gardens of the Galaxy again, guys. It's a feel-good film. Uh, I think I think we, we're kind of okay. You know what? We've been let's, let's name some fun things in let's, Spider-Man. Okay, thing one. J.K. Simmons is J. Jonah Jameson. The Perfect. best thing in any superhero movie ever. Um, yeah, that is the pl- the platonic ideal of movie casting. It's so yeah. good they can't cast him again. They can't have the character show up in the new I mean, movies because they'll never do that good a job. They were just going to ask him to come back, and he said he might, and I don't know why they just don't. Like, fuck it. Like, why lie? Why pretend we're going to do better? Yeah, it's like... Judy Dench was the perfect M in Bond. They rebooted Bond, and they're like, well, what are we going to do? Cast somebody else's M? She can come back. They brought her back. New timeline and everything. And she gets to stay M. You can have you can have uh, K- J.K. Simmons come back and do Jameson. Did you, did you guys read Wizard Magazine a lot when you were younger? Not a whole lot. A uh, little. Okay, I read it religiously. This That magazine was my connection to the world of comics pre-internet. 
And they used to do these things called, like, casting calls, where, like, they would do, like, hey, who'd be great in a movie about Gen 13 or whatever? And then, I don't know, fill it with actors from Dawson's Creek. But uh, I remember that they would constantly figure out, like, how would we do Spider-Man? That's, like, the hot movie. How could you do it? And um, so they, they covered a lot of the, like, Hollywood gossip about this movie in development for, like, a very, very long time. At one point, I think, for April Fool's issue, they even had... Uh, some name artist, I want to say it was Alex Ross, but I'm probably wrong, draw up like a poster based on the rumors surrounding James Cameron's iteration of this film. So it was like Leonardo DiCaprio as Spider-Man with the like Spider-Sense half-Spidey face. And like Nikki Cox was like Mary Jane. And I think like Malkovich was Green Goblin, stuff like that. But there was a short period of time, I think, where William H. Macy was uh, one of the actors that was linked to playing J. Jonah Jameson. And I kept thinking that would be, like, fun if, like, David Mamet made Spider-Man. Like, just him <laughs> speaking in, like, clipped weird phrases. But when I finally saw the movie, and to me, J.K. Simmons at the time was just the weird, like, white supremacist guy from Oz. Like, that's who he was in my head. So to see him be so fun and so full of life and vibrance and, like, everything else in the movie pales to what he accomplishes on screen in this film. Like, Willem Dafoe has some fun. Uh, he makes a lot of really weird choices as Norman Osborn. Uh, you know, Cliff Robertson is pretty good as Uncle Ben. He's not, like, great, but he's not bad. He's just kind of, like... He's doing the same thing, I think, like... Uh, um, I can't remember the actor's name who played Pa Kent in Richard Donner Superman, but he was also in the movie Gilda, and I'm really ashamed for forgetting his name right now. But, like, that actor was sort of, like, uh, um, cashing in his... Uh, clout as like an old Hollywood actor to play a very small role and they got a lot of emotion out of it because you recognize him from older stuff and I felt like Cliff Robertson was doing the same thing as Uncle Ben he just had he had nothing to to like work with at all he's just the old guy living in Peter Parker's house that you know is not going to stick around for much longer I like that we blew past the image of 11 year old Dom watching Oz (laughs) (laughs) I grew up I I grew up odd but um okay uh, there's definitely, I think, a sense of every actor in this movie is casted for a reason. It's just that not all of them are casted for the right reason. We haven't spent a whole lot of time. We've been spending time talking about about Peter, um, but we haven't gotten to to some of the other main characters in detail yet. We haven't talked. I guess we got a little bit into MJ, but do we have anything else we more we want to say about about Mary Jane? I hate the way that she exists to be a romantic interest to every male character at the same time. Yeah, even Norman gives her that, like, three-minute stink-eye thing that was just... Right. Talking about the creepy dinner with the turkey and, like, when he's like, Broomer fast, which is, like, the only line of dialogue that I always remember from this movie because it just sounds like a weird thing no one would ever say. (laughs) Like, Norman is creepy the whole movie, but then he becomes a raging misogynist for four minutes? Like... Yeah. Yeah. There's not enough to Mary Jane on her own as a character here, and it's a bummer because the one defining thing about her throughout the three movies that has nothing to do with any of the male characters is that she's a failure as an actress. It's yeah. not a great claim what of fame. What is the opposite of the Bechdel test? Because I think the movie passes it, like, twice. Um, I don't think there are any other female characters outside of Mary Jane. I guess Betty? Okay. Just Aunt May. Yeah, and, like, Aunt May isn't even treated like a woman or a person so much oh. as she is, like, a bundle of nostalgic sadness. Like, 
I think the only scene Aunt May has where she's not just being like a reminder that Peter is a horrible fuck up is like the scene where the goblin shows up and she's like quoting the Bible or whatever and he's like finish it and all like what the hell well, all the characters have this problem, except for Peter and, and 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 Norman. They all have the problem of their of their just devices for the for the plot, really. But I mean, yeah. particularly MJ and I guess Aunt May. But Harry's the same way. I mean, who's Harry? None of, are, none of them are written with a personality. They just say lines that move the plot along, but they not in a way that also informs us anything about who they are as people. I feel like Bruce Campbell's cameo character has more character development than some of the supporting gas. Accurate. At the very least, he's more memorable. He's more memorable than Uncle Ben or... Um, I forgot, and that's telling. Um, pretty much, when you have your weird indie movie cameo guy exuding tremendous, like, so much more personality than your lead, it's, it's a problem. You know, I think also... Uh, one of the things we're forgetting about this movie, too, is, like, that when you watch uh, Spider-Man, this particular Spider-Man movie, all of the side stuff it, we're thinking about now because, like, that's what we expect from a good superhero movie. We expect there to be, like, some fun actors doing some interesting things with the side plots. But the thrust of this movie is really Peter gets bitten by a spider. Peter tries to become a wrestler. It doesn't work out. Peter has Phil Hymanez draw him a Spider-Man costume <laughs> and takes it. Uh, and then, like, Peter fights the Green Goblin. Like... All of the stuff that we're really frustrated with in the movie, no one making the movie really gave a shit about either. Like, they knew that the thrust of the film was going to be his origin, him learning how to fly around on webs, and then him punching the Green Power Ranger to death at the end. Like, everything else is just sort of uh, peripheral. Um, and if we're going to judge the movie based on how well they do the Spider-Man origin, they actually do it pretty solidly. You know what I mean? Like, the Spider-Bite shit works. Uh, him slowly developing powers, like, th that whole sequence kind of works out. Um, it's corny, but I still kind of laugh at him trying to figure out how to get the webs to come out of his uh, arms. You know, that's something we're kind of glossing over, how controversial the organic web shooters were at the time. Um, people were really pissed. Uh, they were. I think it's, it's such a dumb thing to get mad about it. Like, I prefer when he invents it, because it gives him more texture as a character, like he's this genius, and they use it in the story like they do in the remakes and, you know, traditionally in the comics. But, you know, what What a what a nothing thing to get mad about, in my opinion. Well, particularly, too, because, like, people are mad that, like... I mean, if you ask, like, a, a, a layperson to describe Spider-Man's powers... They're going to go, well, why does he have to make the webs? Like, spiders don't have to de create devices to make webs. He has a spider's powers, right? So, like, it fits. You know, in the movie, he just he shoots, uh, he shoots webbing out of his wrists. It also fits the um, really weird teenage metaphor of, like, puberty and stuff, you know, uh, in, a, in a visceral, gross way. Um, you know, that, there's the, I believe there's that one scene where Aunt May walks in on him, like, where he, like, whips a lamp across the room with his webbing and, like... I'm pretty sure Sam Raimi shot it to feel like a creepy sex joke, and it worked, because every time that scene comes up, I get uncomfortable. Um, That's definitely... Yeah, it, uh, it, sorry, go ahead, JoJo. It definitely comes across as a metaphor for some of the more awkward things about puberty. Oh, brief aside, I mentioned to my friend I was doing this podcast, and she said that I had to mention that when he's checking himself out in the mirror with his strange transformation. <laughs> I know that, where you're going. Uh, he, 
He does have a moment of looking down, <laughs> far down, and says, big change. Yeah, like, he can see the rest of his body in the mirror. That's what he has to check by looking down. There's nothing else it could be. Was there any reason for him to have the proportionate cock length of a spider? <laughs> I don't even understand how that makes sense. I don't like, even think it would be an advantage for him. I think it would be a loser. It's just, Especially with the costume that he wears. Like, <laughs> yeah. While we're talking about the costume, I think that the uh, perfect Spider-Man costume is the one from The Amazing Spider-Man 2, a film I have not watched, but it just looks right. Yeah, that I costume thought, looks good. I thought this costume was fine. I just... I could do without a scene of him drawing it himself and then having it, but expecting us to like believe he fucking made it because nothing about that costume looks like it's a pieces of a costume. And like, I know, you know, no one wants to see a Spider-Man movie where his costume looks the way it does from like the Japanese Spider-Man show. But Spider-Man's the one superhero who, like, we know for a fact is fucking poor. We know for a fact does not have the resources to create, like, exciting polymers and, and uh, nanotech lycra or whatever. He should be the one superhero whose costume looks like something he bought and has to wash and sometimes doesn't wash and maybe smells. Uh, and it really frustrates me watching this movie again, seeing that the costume looks so production designed and, like, it doesn't look like a thing that you could take apart in pieces. You know what I mean? And like so much of why I like Spider-Man is that he's sort of like the poor man superhero. He's not Bruce Wayne. He's not an alien. He's just a, like a sad dude from Queens who's trying to pay off his aunt's medical bills. So a scene of a teenager who looks 45 drawing a costume that involved and then just having it is like, what? No, fuck you. Like, don't do that. Just cut that scene. Just... Just have him wear it and say that's what the costume looks like. Don't pretend like he made it himself somehow. Yeah, it doesn't really work from a storytelling perspective. Also, that scene is the sole reason why we have 30 minutes of Batman Begins devoted to where Batman gets his spikes from. Like, Chris Nolan saw that scene and was like, I'm not going to do that. I'm going to explain everything. So, Uh, that scene from Spider-Man. Whoa, whoa, whoa. We're harping on Batman Begins here. You guys don't, we have, we won't do that episode for like another year. But that is that is a movie that I have very strong positive feelings for. And I love that movie too. Just that particular bit of superhero movies today really bugs me. Like I don't care how a superhero puts his costume together. I would rather he just wear it and start punching people. I'm sorry, I hate that movie too. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I have I have heard from a couple of people that they hate that movie, and I feel like I have to have two guests who hate Batman Begins on for the Batman Begins episode to balance out how much I love it uh, and so that I can understand why people hate it and give them a chance to argue that and now is now is not the time for that but it, I it would like to hear I feel like um, Jojo I feel like you have more to say about why this movie sucks to your eyes. Most of it comes down to the plot being kind of weird and convenient things things just happen and it doesn't doesn't feel right from a tonal perspective or fit right in its own internal reality relationships are are glossed over and we're just told what they are i feel norman osborn when he tests the green goblin stuff on himself that's that's kind of coming out of nowhere. That's unearned. That should happen after the scene with the board meeting when he would, where it would make sense why he would do something so crazy as to 
test this stuff on himself. Why do they have a, the gas chamber all set up if they're nowhere near ready for human testing? <laughs> that's that's in my notes here. It's also an enormous tank. Wouldn't you want something where the gas would be more compressed and you're not wasting so much of it in that big tank? He's not breathing all of that stuff. Yeah. Wasting a whole a, lot of it. A lot of my notes here are just writing Willem in all capital letters <laughs> because I, I love Willem Dafoe so much. We haven't quite given him his due yet today. Tell us why you love Willem Dafoe in this film. Oh, how, how do I begin to express all of my feelings of love for Willem Dafoe just in general? So it goes beyond his performance in this film. You're, you're a fan of his work. I, I am just a fan of Willem Dafoe's work in general. I don't, I don't like everything that he's in, but I love him. Just love him. I can tell you the moment in this film that really sells me on his, just his total commitment to this. This is one of two movies that came out in 2002 that features the villain talking to himself in his reflection. One of them is this film, and the other is Gollum and the Two Towers. Yes, and same year. That movie gets all the love. This scene is amazing! It's, there's no cuts, it's just him talking to himself in the mirror, and you see his face switching between the two characters. And it's hammy... And it's delicious. I, I like that. I like that a whole lot. I, I really wish that this whole movie was just replaced with Willem Dafoe recites sinister poetry in a mirror. Betrayal must not two be hours. Have you, uh, <laughs> have you guys read Warren Ellis's Thunderbolts work where Norman Osborn has the team full of villains and he works for the government? No, I've read a couple issues. Every one of those scenes where it's just Norman by himself being fucking crazy, <laughs> I want a whole movie of Willem Dafoe doing that. Just him fantasizing about murdering Spider-Man, uh, like, you know, uh, reminiscing about wearing the same costume he wore when he killed Gwen Stacy, just him being full-on insane. I think I think so many actors that play supervillains want to, want to go the, like, the Loki route of, I'm going to be a supervillain who's so fascinating and interesting that no one's going to care that I'm evil and horrible. Whereas Willem Dafoe was like, so I'm playing a guy who dresses up like uh, a goblin and wants to terrorize people? Fuck yeah, okay, I can do that. I played Jesus yeah. once. He's <laughs> really into it. It's, it's a strange choice to me that you would cast a man who just looks already like the Green Goblin and then you would put him in a mask when he becomes the Green Goblin. To be fair, that giant creepy helmet looks almost more normal than Willem Dafoe's real. <laughs> yes, you know, accurate. Like Weird Al says, he's scarier without it on. There's got to be there's, there's got to be some meeting with a producer of this film who was like, "We have to put him in the mask cuz Willem Dafoe will frighten children until they die." Like <laughs> <laughs> well, there was a, a green mask like that looked like one in the comics that they screen tested, and it was really weird looking and kind of scary. I mean, mostly it looked weird and wouldn't really seem realistic in the least. But but it's also like it's supposed to be a mask, so they yeah, did... it just it was odd it being a helmet, particularly because of the fact that Willem Dafoe does such a good job building himself up as this chemically induced madman, and then like the first scene where he gets to cut loose actually as the goblin is like. A parade and Macy Gray is there <laughs> and it's impossible to take seriously. Macy Gray, famous for the exact 15 minutes necessary to be in this film. <laughs> yeah, like if she had been famous for one month less, she just would have been a strange extra in this film. But instead, it's Macy Gray. She was in Spider Man that one time. <sighs> Willem Dafoe. Willem Dafoe. 
you, I don't know if you guys have this have this thing, but like when I read Spider-Man comics as a kid, I always liked that Norman and Harry Osborn looked nearly identical. One was just slightly older and slightly crazier, but they both, both had very strange hair. I sort of buy Willem Dafoe as James Franco's father, and that Franco's like still handsome, and that if you give him another twenty years, he'll just morph into Willem Dafoe. Like I, I sort of <laughs> related. They both have that poofy hair. Yeah. Well, if I was great, I want to crawl into the the little gap between his teeth and live there. He's wonderful. I I want <laughs> every scene where he's talking to himself. Like, I I would go into those scenes randomly when I just just in public and just start at any at the slightest provocation, scream at my friends. The cunning warrior attacks neither body nor mind. You know, <laughs> <just being laughs> Make him wish he so were good. dead, then grant his wish. You know, just Willem Dafoe as Gilbert Gottfried as Norman Osborn as the Green <laughs> Goblin. <laughs> if you stretch it just a little bit further, it sounds like a Woody Allen audition tape. You know, <laughs> he's like a little nebbishy, he's a little bit weird. It's okay. it's it's weird. He he feels like he came from a different movie though. He came from the right movie. Everybody just <laughs> the right for him. Movie. Everything everybody yeah. but him. And J.K. Simmons and I would argue Rosemary Harris, who does the appropriate amount of hamminess as Aunt May. Everybody but them yes. is in the wrong movie. Yeah, she has she she strikes a fine balance. I thought she was pretty good. I think she's way better than Sally Field in the newer movies. Who like I don't know what the fuck she was doing, um, you know. And uh, I I think that um isn't uh wait I could be wrong. Uh, I hear if this is Spider-Man one or two. Because uh, after I watched Spider-Man one over, I rewatched parts of two, and they just kind of blended into one weird Godfather epic for me. But doesn't Elizabeth Banks show up as Betty Brant? Yes, she does. She's in all three of these films. She kind of fits. They don't give her anything to do, but like that was nice. She seems like a Daily Planet person. I would have loved to see some like some Urich, some Robertson, some of the other guys. Um, I, th- I think that stuff could have been more fleshed out, uh, or at least more present, so it feels a little more like Spider-Man. Uh, oh, we're also forgetting that uh, Joe Manganiello, the the really hot guy from Magic Mike and like True Blood, was yeah. for like two minutes. Yes, he or was. Or he became really feral and, and uber masculine. Do you know what he does best? I guess. Yeah. Uh, other cameos in this film, you know, Stan Lee in one of his smaller. Before they decided that every time he showed up in a movie would have to be an event. Like, who's he going to be this time? He's just some guy pulls a. A kid wearing, I guess, like, later hosen out of the way of some rubble. Just one time, I want him to show up in a cameo holding a picture of Jack Kirby. <laughs> <laughs> and it just says, I'm sorry, underneath Yeah, it's just yes. him crying. Um, yeah. I, I, I saw somebody propose the idea that I like that Stan Lee is the Watcher. <laughs> <laughs> That's beautiful. That's Have you guys, I didn't find out about this until two days ago. I think I might have been reading a Cracked article or something. The fan theory that uh, Bruce Campbell in each of his cameos in Spider-Man's 1, 2, and 3 is actually playing Mysterio? <laughs> like, this is a thing that people on the internet decided. I have no idea how they extrapolated Bruce Campbell showing up, saying a quip, and leaving as, oh, that's Quentin Beck, but uh, well, that's a thing people believe. Because yeah. they're willing to explain things that don't need to be explained in movies so they can feel smart and brag to their internet friends. Yes. Yeah, I've, I've heard that theory as well don't know where it came from if there was ever any thought of if this became a quadrilogy instead of a trilogy if he would go on to play Mysterio at some point or it, it was supposed ever to be John, Spider-Man 4 was supposed to be John Malkovich as the as the vulture so probably not 
Yeah, that movie would have sucked. Yeah, we all got <laughs> we all got spared Sam Raimi's Spider-Man for. We're we're better off as a species without it. Um, uh, I can't remember. Dylan Baker doesn't show up until Spider-Man Two as Connor, yeah, right? That's so, correct. I just I usually just mentally put Dylan Baker anywhere because that guy's fantastic. Uh, you know he's sitting somewhere still sad that he's not going to end up playing the lizard. Like he sat through two of these damn movies for no reason. <laughs> One of the things I don't think we really touched on at all uh, that I think is maybe this movie's lasting impact, the thing that no matter how much we pick it apart will always sort of work, at least for me, the sequences of just Spider-Man being Spider-Man, just swing through New York. It's, they're very CGI heavy, but they really, really work. They feel really right. You know what I mean? Uh, in the X-Men, like, you see them do things with their powers, but they never really feel like the X-Men. You know what I mean? Batman... He fights guys, but Christopher Nolan keeps the camera too close. So it doesn't feel like Batman. Like, in Spider-Man, he swings from building to building, and it feels like Spider-Man. It just feels right. And that's, like, my favorite thing about this movie is that for every scene that maybe tonally is off or doesn't really, you know, feel very strongly written, when he becomes Spider-Man and does Spider-Man-like things... To me, it's on par with the flying scenes in Donner Superman, which, you know, I guess now we might laugh at. But, like, they had that power. They had that inspirational um, brightness to them that I think a lot of superhero movies maybe miss. Um, uh, I mean, watching them now, it, it's very clear that it's just shit tons of CGI. But when you first saw it, it was like, that's how it should look. He should be, like, waking weird poses and, like, his knee should be behind his neck because that's how Tom McFarlane drew it. And it just, it all felt right. Yeah. Those, those moments definitely feel like this is Spider-Man. I do really love the montage of um, just people reacting to the existence of Spider-Man. I like the little cameos. I love that Lucy Lawless shows up. Yes. That is Lucy Lawless as the as the guy with eight hands. Sounds hot, gal. And that's, yeah. that's awesome. Lucy Lawless. I think the movie succeeds the closer it gets spiritually to... Sam Raimi's work on Xena and Hercules. The more like fun and goofy it is, the more it feels like a good movie, and the more it tries to stretch its legs and affect you emotionally. It's like don't fucking bother. Like you cast a Tobey Maguire, we already know that you were gonna pull this off. Like let's just let's just stick to the fun stuff. Speaking of fun stuff, the one thing I think from Spider-Man mythology that. Uh, me as a person will never let go is when Peter decides for whatever ungodly reason to become a professional wrestler briefly. I, I uh, knew we were going to get there. Uh, yes. For those of you who are listening who don't follow deadshirt.net, our website, on a regular basis, uh, Dominic Griffin has a, a um, bi-weekly column called In This Very Ring where he demonstrates his just insane level of, of um, expertise on the world of professional wrestling and I have to ask you, Dom, does anything about the wrestling in this movie make any sense in the real world of wrestling? So it doesn't at all. But that is why I love it. Because one of the coolest things about Spider-Man's origin is that I don't think any other superhero has an origin where they decide to do one thing and then they fail miserably at it and then they actually course correct and become the hero we know and love. Like, there's no story where Bruce Wayne briefly is like a bounty hunter and then becomes Batman. Like, you know what I mean? It's like, oh, I fucked up, and this is not the right thing. Peter Parker decides he's really strong, he's really fast, he can do all this cool shit. He's going to become a wrestler, which is, like, so odd. And almost no iteration of the Spider-Man origin really makes that part of the story work. 
for me or probably for anyone with a brain. Um, currently, uh, Dan Slott is doing this kind of cool, like, prequel Spider-Man story that takes place during that period of Peter's life. It's actually really good. People should check out. Um, you know, uh, Bendis did a little bit of this stuff with him fighting Crusher Hogan and Ultimate Spider-Man. But I don't think anyone got the spectacle and the ridiculousness of Peter deciding to wrestle as well as this movie. Largely because no one, no one else had Randy Savage at their disposable. Um, disposal. There's an entire sequence of Peter deciding to become a wrestler. Bruce Campbell's like the ring announcer. And Macho Man Randy Savage, rest in peace, is Bonesaw McGraw. Which is like, whatever writer came up with that name is a fucking genius. It just, it's it rolls such a good name. Tongue. It's so perfect. I'm so jealous. And they're in a steel cage, which is an odd... Uh, gimmick to use for someone's first match, particularly someone they found in the street with a mask. And he just like does a bunch of Spider-Man shit. And that's so great, because like everything else I've seen is always Peter just like overpowering some muscle-bound dude, and then he lets a guy kill his uncle, and he feels like an asshole for like 40 years. In this movie, that one moment of like him doing this, and him, him in the spotlight, him soaking up the adoration... It makes sense. Even though it's a silly thing, even though it's very much Sam Raimi just having a blast, that sequence, goofy though it may be, you understand why Peter's doing it. You understand why uh, this creepy, sad, disaffected nerd thinks that it's a good idea for him and his, his career or whatever. Um, and it makes the, the sadness and the, the tragedy of Uncle Ben's death actually resonate. It's like one of the only moments in the movie for me that really holds up because you get to see this cocky idiot kid finally given some measure of power misusing it, and it leads to him losing the only person that has ever really believed in him. Um, I mean, plus on me, I guess. And uh, I love that. I think it's really great. I think that if the, more of the movie uh, operated using the juxtaposition between overt, goofy, slapsticky action and sullen, powerful tragedy, I think it would be a better movie. I think if more things where here's Peter trying to have fun and do a good job, and he fucks it up and everything sucks. Like, that is Peter Parker's life. He tries to do nice things, tries to do the right thing, uh, and he's almost always wrong, and people almost always get hurt for it. He just tries harder next time. And, you know, you could say that about most people. You know, we, we try to do good in life. We try to make things uh, better than they are. A lot of times we make the wrong decisions, and then we have to learn from it, you know. And um, even though it's, you know, it's Peter fighting Macho Man Randy Savage... Uh, it actually works. I don't know. I, I, I really uh, rewatched that sequence a couple of times because it's funny as hell. Um, but I really was struck by how well the transition from that into Uncle Ben's death later uh, really functioned and really worked. Um, I really wish the rest of the film had the same the same level of success. It looks like we're gonna see we're we're hitting that mark now. The the old red light is showing up on my imaginary studio here, and we need to start wrapping this shit up. Jojo, do you have any other particular thoughts you want to throw in before we uh, before we call it a day? Just that it's a movie that has that had so much potential, but the story is just a mess. The characterization is not there. It's got some great concepts and some really good sequences, but as a film, it just does not hold together. Dom, any final brief closing thoughts? Uh, I feel like, uh, similar to Brian Singer's X-Men, this movie, Sam Raimi's first Spider-Man, is like a necessary evil that leads to better things down the line, and also worse things further down the line. 
Uh, I think it's an important movie in the superhero, uh, you know, lineage. I think that uh, it's it, without this particular iteration of Spider-Man, later films might not have functioned the same way. Uh, some of the lightheartedness and the fun is really ingrained in the DNA of what we now think of as the Marvel movie template. Um, but no, JoJo's totally right. There's tons of shit that just doesn't work. But I don't know. I, I still enjoy it. If it comes on TNT as one of its new classics, I'll still watch it. Um, I, I still, you know, nostalgically yearn for that opening weekend where I saw it way too many times. And um, I don't know. It's better than Spider-Man Three. <laughs> it's a it's a superhero movie that's ultimately not very heroic. The most heroic moments are in the montages where we see him going around superheroing, but in all of the major moments, for the most part, everything he's doing is to is to impress somebody. It's so frustrating. In a way, I don't know. I I sort of buy some of the hurt heroism in the film, but you're right. It just feels odd. You know what I mean? When he finally fells the green goblin, he just moves out of the way and lets him accidentally kill himself. You know what I mean? Like there's a lot of moments that don't, there's none of, none of what I love about Spider-Man. There's no scene of him holding up a giant heavy object saying, I have to do this for Aunt May, or there's no, you know, um, none of those moments that we, I think we as readers of the comics and lovers of the, of the Spider-Man mythology really look to, to go, that's who Peter Parker is. He's a guy that does this. You know, for everything that you could say about the newer Mark Webb Spider movies, and there's tons of things you could say negatively about them, I do think that they at times really capture why you love Spider Man and why kids want to be Spider Man. You know, and these movies, there's not as much of that. Um, they, they, I don't think they were really thinking about how the reader, the viewer, the audience member is really going to uh, insinuate themselves into that fantasy. You know what I mean? Outside of the weird nerd stuff and like wishing you could, I don't know fight Macho Man and date Kirsten Dunst. There's none of that hero stuff, that, like, I wish I was a better person and I wish that I could avenge mistakes by swinging and punching things. You know what I mean? It just doesn't quite connect. Right. I think they're trying to build to a conclusion of him learning to be heroic in the last moments. That The takeaway from all of this is that he has learned to be responsible, as they tell you very flat out, and that that means giving up the thing he has wanted in this entire movie, which is Mary Jane. But he does it in like a horrible patronizing way that really is weird and inappropriate for their relationship. And is patronizing to her because his decision is to not tell her that he has this part of his life that is that is being Spider-Man. That he's going to keep her in the dark and just not pursue their relationship and that this is his big his big heroic moment is to decide to give up on her just, just objectifying of her even further than this than this movie already does and you know i think jojo's really right for better or for worse this movie really sets up the trope of it is okay for us as a movie studio to sell you a two and a half hour movie that is really a long prologue for a real movie later. That at the very final moments of this movie, Spider-Man is now the Spider-Man you know and love. Please come see Spider-Man 2 where you won't have to go through an hour of him being a weirdo. Like, Yeah, but then the next two movies are filled with him being a weirdo. 
No, I know, and that's the bad trope. It's like you watch Star Trek, and it's like, now Captain Kirk is no longer an asshole. Then you watch Star Trek in the Darkness, and it's like, he's still Damn kind an of asshole. an asshole. Yeah. asshole yeah, it's, it's a promise they don't keep. Yeah, it's it's I, I it's like guys, I know you don't want to watch an hour of this character becoming this character, but then he's gonna be the guy you like and it's gonna be fine. You know, it's like Skyfall ends with Bond getting back to basics and it's gonna be a normal Bond story. I fucking guarantee you the next James Bond movie he's gonna get even more back to basics because that's the nature of the beast. And this movie making a bajillion dollars uh is is definitely part of why that continues to happen. So uh, we're to blame uh, for having supported it financially all these years. In conclusion, audience, it's your fault. You're bad. You're the reason why movies aren't good. You should feel bad about yourself. You Shame should support you. Spike Jones or something, for God's sakes. Okay, we really do have to wrap up this episode now. So I'm going to ask, um, I know that I want to make sure that everybody listening has the opportunity to check out what else you guys have going on around the internet. JoJo... You are the host of a pretty awesome podcast called Disney Dissected. Can you tell our audience a little bit about it? Disney Dissected is where myself and writer Andrew Isla and a rotating guest, we do basically like this, where we we analyze a movie in depth and we talk about the Disney animated classics canon, not in order, just jumping around, and that is at Disney Dissected com. and Dom where can people find you on the internet uh, lots of places um, my my home is deadshirt.net or a movies editor uh, you can see me there writing about movies and wrestling and other stuff uh, I'm on twitter uh, my twitter name is uh, captain underscore fuck because I thought it was funny five years ago and, and now you're stuck with it forever stuck with it forever <laughs> Uh, I'm on Tumblr at Captain No underscore Fuck. Uh, I don't know elsewhere. You, you, if wherever there's someone uh, talking about rap music or professional wrestling or Doctor Who, wherever the hell, I'm probably there next to them making asinine comments. So look for me doing those things. Oh yeah, and Jojo. What are your other uh, social networking uh, areas? I am on Twitter. I'm on Tumblr. I'm on Facebook. I'm on DeviantArt. I got online shops and the hub for everything to find me is my personal website jojoseems.com j-o-j-o-s-e-a-m-e-s okay well it's been a genuine pleasure having the two of you on the show I have had a very good time I hope that you guys have had a good time gap yes. for you guys to confirm that you had a good time yes <laughs> had, had a good time okay and I hope that you, the listening audience, have had an enjoyable experience talking, listening to us talk about Spider-Man. We will be back, or rather, I will be back with two fresh guests next week to talk about the animated Wonder Woman feature film that I'm really excited about this one of favorites. And uh, so we'll see you in seven days here from broadcasting or webcasting or podcasting from the Shatterdome in Hackensack, New Jersey. Uh, please visit us on DeadShirt.net. Have a nice day. Supers on Screen is produced by Dylan Roth for Deadshirt.net. Visit Deadshirt.net for reviews and commentary on comics, movies, TV, music, and more. Like us on Facebook or follow us on Twitter at Deadshirt.net. That's D-E-A-D-S-H-I-R-T-D-O-T-N-E-T. You can find me, Dylan Roth, on Twitter at D-Y-L-A-N-R-O-T-H. Our theme music is Become the Night by Big Damn Heroes. Deadshirt.net. 
consider everything.